I'm excited about today's message. We continue a study in the longest story in the book of Acts, one that we started last Sunday that bleeds from Acts chapter 10 over to Acts chapter 11. And uh, this may well be not only the longest story in the book of Acts, it may well be the most important story in the book of Acts as well. A generation ago, Dr. Martin Luther King said these words, our scientific power has outrun our spiritual power. I think that's still true today, don't you? Our scientific power has outrun our spiritual power. We live in an age of guided missiles and misguided men. Well, here in Acts chapter 10, we have a beautiful example of two spiritually misguided men. One was misguided in terms of his understanding about how to have a relationship with God. The other was misguided in terms of who can have a relationship with God. Those two men are, of course, a Gentile from the Roman capital of the land of Palestine, a city known as Caesarea. His name was Cornelius. And the other was an Orthodox Jew from Galilee, a fisherman turned gospel preacher whose name was Peter. One needed to repent of his sins and find salvation in Jesus Christ. The other needed to repent of the bigotry and prejudice of his heart and preach the gospel to all men and women, regardless of race, background, worship style, creed, color, whatever. So there's a lot of change that needs to happen in this wonderful story. And thanks be unto God, we see it happening in both men. If you were here last week, you know we focused our attention on the second of those two case studies, the Apostle Peter looking at the conversion of heart that needed to happen in Peter's life for the gospel to go to the uttermost part of the world where only Gentiles typically lived. Today, I want to backtrack for a few minutes and take a look at the conversion of spirit that needed to happen in our new friend Cornelius. We're in Acts chapter 10, and why not start at verse number one? Can I have an amen this morning? The Bible says at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Sound like a pretty good guy to me. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's the image of the smoke of a sacrifice going up to the nostrils of God. They've ascended as a burnt offering, a memorial offering to God. And God is pleased. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Let's stop there for just a moment because there's actually quite a bit of detail about the person known as Cornelius that I think it's important to note. Three things in particular. One, I want you to notice he's an important man. He's a soldier, a well-respected soldier, a Roman centurion. Uh, 
We see centurions all throughout the New Testament, and I'm telling you, every time you see a Roman centurion, Romans were not well-liked by Jews or others who were not of their ilk, but every time they're in the Bible, always in a positive light, every single time. And this is no different. He is the commander of what's known as a century. Century means what? 100, and so that meant that a centurion commanded how many men? A hundred men, 6,000 in a legion, 600, or, uh, uh, 600 cohorts in a legion, and then a hundred centuries, or a hundred men in a century. So he commanded a hundred men. He'd function kind of like a captain would in uh, the army of today. So he's an important, well-traveled, well-disciplined leader of men. And uh, with that in mind, it's no surprise that it would have gotten Peter's attention once he learned that a Roman centurion wanted to have a visit with him. Not only that, we learn from this passage that Cornelius was a religious man. Did you notice that? Quite unusual in this respect for a Roman living in an age of polytheism where the Romans, of course, worship multiple gods. In fact, we might even describe him as a pious man. A devout man. He was what was known as a God-fearing man, a God-fearer. He was not a full-blown convert to Judaism. He'd never been circumcised. He was still an uncircumcised Gentile. But he feared the God of the Jews, and he respected the God of the Jews, and he probably attended the synagogue when he could. And he certainly tried to embrace the ethical demands of the law that he apparently had come to uh, love and respect. We're told he gives alms to the poor like every good Jew was taught to do. We're, taught, we're told here he prayed to God and uh, that he was a man who sought the Lord in a certain sense. And God obviously heard those prayers and God certainly responded to those prayers. He seemed to be a good husband and a good father and a good neighbor because later on we're going to see he's brought everybody into the house. They're jammed up in the house waiting on Peter to get there. And we're going to find that his family and those neighbors that he loved and respected and appreciated so much get saved <clears throat> right along with him. So he's a religious man. He's a family man. He's a good neighbor. He's pious. He's devoted. He's important in his community. But for our purposes today, I think the one thing that we ought to notice above all in the midst of all those good things that we just said about him is that Cornelius was a lost man. He was good. He was a good family, neighborly, community, government-serving man on his way to hell. Because one thing we're going to find out is there was something that he didn't have that he desperately needed, and that's why the angelic vision. To get to Peter, or to get to Cornelius, rather, what he must have in order to find the gift of eternal life. He's praying at the ninth hour of the day, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, one of the two prescribed hours for Jewish prayer. And this angelic messenger shows up and tells him basically that even though he's a great guy and he has good works on his resume and his personal piety has shown up as a memorial before God and been accepted by God and appreciated with, by God, something was missing that he absolutely had to have. And so the messenger tells him, you need to send emissaries down to Joppa about 30 miles down the road, about a 10-hour uh, time to travel. would take taken most of the whole day 
retrieve a gospel preacher named Peter. And uh, when Peter hears about that, he recounts later in chapter 11 that the reason that was necessary is that Peter needed, using his words in 11.14, to declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So let me just say this. Y'all still with me so far? You need to note that Cornelius, though he was a good man, his goodness was not good enough to curry him favor with God. His goodness was not sufficient to save him. I mean, this was a religious man. This was a guy that tried to pattern his life after the best of Jewish tradition and Jewish religious form. But it was not enough to save him. It was not enough for him ultimately. God appreciated what he was doing, and God certainly noticed what he was doing. He was a seeker of truth, but that was not enough He needed something that was not there at the time, something that only someone else anointed and chosen by God could give to him. He needed to know that only the blood of Jesus Christ could cleanse him from all sin. Isn't that right? And so Peter was the guy to do that, and that's why he sends for Peter. But unbeknownst to Cornelius, God was doing a work in Peter's life because he had stuff going on in his life that also needed to be cleansed and also needed to be purged. Peter's problem was that even though he had the message of life in Jesus Christ, he possessed a bias against those who weren't like him, a prejudice that kind of kept him from going into a Gentile's house in order to share it. So God gives Peter a vision. That's what we looked at if you were here last week, the vision of this great sheet descending down from heaven. And what was inside that sheet, Christian scholars? Inside that sheet was all kinds of animals, unclean animals to a Jew, animals that they were taught never to consume, never to touch, certainly never to eat. And all those animals were there along with a voice, and it was the voice that really troubled Peter because the voice of the Spirit of God said to Peter, Arise, kill, and eat. What God has cleansed, you must never again call common or unclean, or unholy. And Peter's later going to determine that God was talking to him not just about food, although he was talking about food, but more to the point, God was communicating something that he desperately needed to know in this very important stage of the ministry and mission of the church, namely that God was pronouncing all people clean. Not only was all food clean, but all people were clean, And so in the Jim Locke Revised Standard Version, here's what God is saying to Peter. If you like it, eat it. If they're breathing, preach it. Because there is no favoritism, there is no partiality with God. And that's his vision. So now we're left to see what he's going to do. There's high tension and high drama. I mean, let me just say it this way. The future of the church is at stake, that's all. The mission of the church under the mandate of the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to power to be my witnesses to the uttermost part of the world. That's on the line right here. And the gospel is going to go to Gentiles because that was the plan of God. But I tell you, what's at stake here is ultimately a divided church, a Jewish church on the one hand, a Gentile church on the other, and that would not have been pleasing to God. 
So there's some high drama. What's Peter going to do? How's he going to deal with these long-standing prejudices of his life directed against not only bad food, but what he'd been taught to believe was bad people? Now, I know I mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King a moment ago, but let me tell you something else Dr. King also said. Are you all listening? Say amen. Here's what he said. The time is always right to do what is right. Can I have an amen this morning? The time is always right to do what is right. And can I say this morning, thank God the apostle Peter did the right thing. God said, get up and go. And what did Peter do? He got up and he went. And we can see it here in verse 23 of Acts chapter 10. The next day, Peter rose and went away with them. That's obedience. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. I just love that. Underline that in your notes. And had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. I, I, I fully believe you could have heard a pin drop when he walked into that room. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common are unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, verse 33, you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I just love that. I mean, there's just tension right there. And you just know there's this, that's the reason I had you underline that concept of expectancy. Because that's what I love here. You can tell Cornelius knows that there is something otherworldly that's about to go down in his house. I mean, you can tell it because the first thing he does is walk up to Peter and just throw himself down. I mean, he's just got pent up stuff in his life. He's been spoken to by the Lord. He doesn't really know what's happening, but he knows something spiritual is happening that's getting ready to change his life. He doesn't know what else to do. He's just got to worship something. And so he falls down at the feet of Peter, and Peter has him get up, for I too am a man. And I'm telling you, you just have to love the sense of expectancy here. Here's what the Lord led us to do, Cornelius said. Here's what we did. And now we're all here, watch this, we're all here in the presence of God. Is there any doubt about that? We're all here in the presence of God to hear what you have to say and to witness all that he's going to do. Man, he's just so taken by the moment that he's hypercharged and thinks Peter's a God-man himself and he just wants him to open up his mouth and start to, may I ask you a question this morning? Wouldn't it be great if we all came to church every Sunday with that kind of pent-up expectancy at what God's gonna do in my life today? 
The 21st century Western church has become more about evaluation than expectation. Many people come to the house of God to evaluate what happens in the house of God. Isn't that right? Rather than coming into the house of God to expect God to do something otherworldly and supernaturally. That is the primary distinction between first century worshipers and 21st century worshipers. One, gathered, <clears throat> one group gathered with expectancy. The other tends to gather for evaluation. And Peter, overcoming a lifetime's worth of racial bias, walks right through the door. Watch this. He walks through the door literally, and he walks through the door spiritually. You remember when Paul said, a great and effective door has been opened for me? He's not talking about a door made of wood or aluminum or steel or brass or brass. He's talking about a door only God can make and a door only God can open. And Peter walks through both kinds of doors right here. And he takes advantage of the situation. Verse 34, so Peter opened up his mouth. There's about three sermons in this passage of Scripture that we're reading today, and I can't attack any of them in one message. He opened up his mouth. Let me just say, there is no gospel witness until and unless you open up your mouth. I've said it a hundred times. You cannot charade your way into leading somebody to Jesus Christ. Your example is great. It's not good enough. Even Jesus, son of God who lived a perfect sinless life, had to open up his mouth and tell others about who he was and what he came to do. This is a prophetic word here used of the prophets of old. Peter opened up his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, parenthesis, he is Lord of all. Now let me stop us again right there because that, if Peter had a title for the message that he's preaching here, the fourth sermon of Peter in the book of Acts, the title of the message would be the title I've titled my message today, Jesus is Lord of all. It's listed here as a parenthesis, as an aside. I think it's the most important thing the man says under the roof of Cornelius, and it has everything to do with the gospel being open and available to everybody, red, yellow, black, white, young, old, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, no matter what, no matter who you are, where you come from, where you've been, what you've experienced in your life, God loves you, and God has a plan for you, and God wants to have an everlasting relationship with you, and he set a gospel of grace in works so that, or in the works, not in your works, but in his works, he set it in play so that every person can be born again and live forever in the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus is Lord, say it out loud, of all. Jesus is Lord of all. Let's just say that whole thing together. Ready? Together. Jesus is Lord of all. Say it again. Jesus is Lord of all. And the sermon is brief, but the purpose of his sermon is to let everybody in that house know how they can know that. And so there are four things I want you to notice as takeaways this morning. First, Peter says that Jesus is Lord as attested 
by his power. By his power. Verse 27, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So the first thing that Peter does here is present Jesus in his earthly ministry. Jesus, a historical man. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a man, but he wasn't just a man. He was the God-man, the unique man. Jesus was fully man in every respect. He was born of a woman, but he was fully God in every respect. He didn't have an earthly father. He was born of the Spirit of God, and he ministered, the Bible says, full of the Holy Spirit and power. And so Jesus was a man whose ministry demonstrated the power of God that was his because of who he was by nature, by eternity, by birth. His ministry was authenticated, you remember, with signs and wonders and miracles. Just this past summer, we isolated seven of those sign miracles of Jesus. And there were many, some 35 or 40 that are mentioned in the four gospels. Those were all there to authenticate and validate who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. He had the power to heal the sick. He had the power to cast out demons. He had the power to raise the dead. He had the power to restore sight to the blind and mobility to the paralyzed. And Peter says, we were there And were eyewitnesses to it, we saw it all, and this is who you can trust him to be. Jesus is Lord of all, as authenticated by his power. Then secondly, Peter affirms that Jesus is Lord, as attested by his death. That's the most important part, I think, of Jesus' life. Really, we speak of it in one event, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But I think the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, there can be no salvation of sin without the death of the eternal Lamb of God who alone takes away the sin of the world because the Bible says it is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And that was the missing link in the life of Cornelius. It was that principal truth that Cornelius needed to know. In spite of his words of authority, in spite of those signs and wonders, Jesus was still condemned to die. Look at verse 39, the last part. Peter says, they put him to death by hanging him on a what? Well, I thought they hung him on a cross. Peter says they hung him on a tree. Well, that's a euphemism. What's a cross made of? It was a cross of what? Wood. Where'd they get the wood? Well, they got it from a tree. And so it's a euphemistic way of saying they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, which, by the way, is very characteristic of Peter. Look at 1 Peter 2.24. He uses the same language there. But more to the point, Peter phrases it that way because he wants them in the house and us, by way of extension, to know that that's a connection really to what God had already said in Deuteronomy chapter 21, where there the Bible makes it clear to the people of Israel known as the Jews that if a man was hanged on a tree, he was what? cursed. That's right. 
The hanging man on a tree cursed him in the sight of God. And so this was Peter's way of communicating in a very poetic kind of way that Jesus took the curse of God on himself for us. He was cursed by God. He was bruised for our iniquities, the Bible says in Isaiah 53. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been what? Healed. That's right. And so Jesus died as our substitute in our place, bearing the curse of sin, the weight of sin, the full penalty and judgment and curse for our sin. And by the way, can I just say this morning, this is why we call the gospel good news. Good news. Because Christ died the death we deserved so that we could live a life we didn't deserve. He died our death so that we could live his life. So Jesus is Lord of all because of his power. Jesus is Lord of all as attested by his death. And then, of course, Jesus is Lord as attested by his resurrection. That is found here in verse number 40. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. A dead Lord is no Lord at all. Isn't that right? Jesus had to die. He was born to die. But if he'd have stayed dead, all he would have been is another in a long line of religious martyrs whose burial ground perhaps you could go and visit. I've been to England. I've been to many places historical in the world, and I usually find cemeteries when I'm there. And I'll go and know that right where I'm standing are the bones of Lord Nelson, or right where I'm standing are the bones of David Livingston, or right where I'm standing are the bones of Winston Churchill, or right where I'm standing are the bones of Paul Revere. You can go to graves all over the planet, and there are the bones. All you find is a bunch of dead bones everywhere. But you go to the grave of the Lord Jesus Christ, if and you could find it, and it would be absolutely empty. There'd be nobody there. There'd be no remains. There'd be nothing because the grave was emptied three days later. Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible says he appeared to over 500 witnesses over a period of 40 days, eating and drinking, fellowshipping and teaching among them. So Jesus is Lord as attested by his power, by his death, by his resurrection. Finally, Peter makes it clear that Jesus is Lord is attested by his authority, an authority that he alone possesses. It's in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Because of the uniqueness of Jesus as the divine son of man, the God-man, fully God, fully man, because of the work of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus alone possesses the authority to do either one of two things, 
in every person's life. He possesses the authority to either judge a person or to forgive a person. Both those concepts are found right here in verses 42 and 43. And that's what he'll do at the final judgment. You'll either stand before the Lord and you'll be judged or you can be forgiven today and eventually stand before the Lord and find yourself acquitted and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven forever and ever. What's the difference between the two? What's the difference between someone who is judged by the authority of Jesus and someone who is forgiven by the authority of the Lord Jesus? I'll tell you what the difference is, how they respond to Jesus Christ. That determines the difference. A response to whom Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done makes all the difference in the world. To everybody who believes in the person and work of Christ, God grants the gift of what? Forgiveness and everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die on the tree that whosoever what? Believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's exactly what Peter just said right there in a different form. To those who reject Jesus, to those who accept him, they will not perish. Man, I'm telling you, you can perish, you've got a problem. That word perish is one of the ugliest in the New Testament. It's a word that means utter destruction, absolute ruin. And to those who always determined to keep Jesus at arm's length, who failed to respond to the drawing power of the Spirit of God, to repent of their sin, and as Cornelius did to Peter, fall before the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed Lord of all, turn to him in saving faith. The only thing people have to look forward to is death and utter ruin for all eternity in a place Jesus called what? Hell. And that's what will happen to those who come under the judgment of Christ at the final judgment. But to everyone who believes in him, God will save and welcome them into his eternal family. Now, that was a very concise message. And what's interesting to me is before Peter even got to the invitation. Somebody say amen this morning. Before he even started to tie the bow together at the end of the message, I'm just telling you, God took over. And if you don't think that's every preacher's dream to happen every Sunday, you've got another thing coming. I just want you to know, you know, we live in a strange day today. It's not a good thing to walk toward the pulpit in the middle of the sermon. But I'm telling you, if you want to be saved, you can get up and walk toward me anytime you want to. You want to be saved right now? I'm not done yet, but that's okay. You can just get up and come and just raise that hand and say, Preacher, I'm, I'm not going to wait anymore. I, can't, I don't have time to wait till you get finished. You're blowing a lot of hot air this morning. we got to do this thing right now. And you just got to love this because I started to entitle this message today, The Miraculous Effect of an Unfinished Sermon. That was a good title, wasn't it? But I like Jesus is Lord of all better because that's kind of what led to the result. That's what Cornelius and everybody in the house embraced. 
And somehow the Spirit of God just takes over the whole room. In fact, let me just read, let's read it together in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And why should we be surprised by that? They were expecting that. From the beginning, when that group of emissaries, there were 10 of them all together that came from Joppa, and when they walked through the door, there was a holy hush in the room, and they expected God to work in power somehow in some way, and that's what happened. The Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, we have to believe, based on what we know about Scripture, that in their heart, before the Spirit of God baptized them, which is what happens here, they had faith. They possessed the gift of faith. And what happens is the Spirit of God consumes them. And the believers, the Bible says, verse 44, uh, 45, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, the miraculous effects of an unfinished sermon. You know, the falling of the Holy Spirit here and the subsequent gift of tongues is important. I don't have time to chase it all this morning. Because that's kind of what happened uh, with the Samaritans to a degree when the, when the gospel went via Philip to the Samaritans. We talked about that a little bit when we were in Acts chapter 8. And like that experience, this is similar in that it's another important first, right? It's the first time. That was the first time the gospel had gone to the Samaritans. This is the first time the gospel had gone to the Gentiles. And so the gospel was being received, and the Holy Spirit was being received for the first time by Gentile people. And let me tell you why this is important. It's important because those Jews who were in the room needed to see it happen like this. They needed to know that the Spirit of God was received by these Gentiles, watch this, in exactly the same way that they, the Jews, had received the Spirit of God at Pentecost, The Spirit fell on the Gentiles first in the same way that the Spirit fell on the Jews first earlier back in Acts chapter 2. He came and his presence was validated through the gift of tongues. And Peter could see that. The rest of the circumcised Jewish believers in the room could see that. That was an authenticating moment in terms of what God had done. Not what Peter had done, but what God had done in the lives of those Gentiles for the very first time. And that's why oftentimes you'll hear this passage referred to as the Gentile Pentecost. And that's a fitting and apt description. It's not a pattern for every Christian who gets saved today. Every Christian is spirit baptized, but not every Christian speaks in tongues. We've taught about that in this room before on more than one occasion. But again, they did so here so there'd be no doubt that their experience of receiving Christ and receiving the Spirit was exactly the same as the Jewish believers earlier. And this would help ensure their acceptance among the people of God with whom there is no partiality, no favoritism among men or women. Now let me just say this very briefly. The next step for these Gentile believers was exactly the same as the next step for those um, Jerusalem Jews and for those pilgrim Jews who got saved and spirit baptized back in Acts chapter 2. 
The next step, as Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be what? Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, every one of you, unto the forgiveness of your sins. Now notice what he says here to Cornelius and gang in verse 46. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, watch this, just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. First came faith, first came the indwelling Holy Spirit, and then comes baptism without delay. Can I say that again? Without delay. We've had people on our pending baptism list at Hillcrest for multiple years. And I don't think the, either the FBI or the CIA or a combination of the two could find those people. Half of them. No, without delay. Here is water. It's available. Y'all have obviously trusted Jesus. You're obviously possessing the Holy Spirit. Now you're ready to give public witness to your faith through the symbolic action of believers' baptism in water. Now let me ask you a question this morning. What about you? What about you? Have you trusted Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you deposited your faith? Do you possess the gift of faith in Jesus Christ? Really a gift that only God can give? And having Possess the gift of faith, trusting Jesus Christ alone in his person and work on the cross? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes instantaneously in that very moment? And have you followed him in obedience by publicly demonstrating the reality of your faith by being baptized before others in water? I'm telling you, the miracle of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, still happens today. It can happen to you. And the story of Cornelius can become your story as it has become the story of so many here at Hillcrest. Here's another example that I want you to take a look at this morning. Watch the big screen. Um, I did not grow up in a Christian home. My idea of Jesus was just kind of like a baby in a manger. I really had no background in faith, in Christian faith or religion or anything. I was 19, I got married um, to my husband Shannon and we were married and we moved off uh, because he was in the military. To sum it up, the first five years of our marriage were really rough and living away from everybody at the time was extremely difficult. It was really hard to be a new mom, a young mom in the military away from home and um, things didn't get any easier. And so we finally hit a breaking point. And at that point we decided um, one of us was gonna be more stubborn than the other and we were gonna we were gonna be the ones that fix it and so we were very poor still because we only had one person working and now two kids and so we couldn't afford to go to counseling so we we're like we're at this point so we're gonna have to figure out what we're gonna do 
I'm like, well, we can always try counseling at the church. I mean, I know they do marriage counseling and um, it's either that or we're gonna get a divorce. We decided, um, we called and um, they signed us up for premarital counseling after five years of marriage. I was not a Christian at this time, still. We did the premarital course with Pastor Jim and it was, it was eye-opening for Shannon, but for me, it just kind of was like, okay, yeah, all right, this, this is great, this is great. Um, but during that time, we also kind of started just coming to church. It was something positive for us to do. We just kind of got in this routine of coming every Wednesday and Sunday. Um, I would listen to the messages and not really uh, know what anything meant. Like I said, there was no background in it. Um, I didn't have anybody feeding scripture into me. And so that went on for a year. The same routine after um, counseling and the church just really loved on us. We had been coming for a year and we came to the Christmas concert. And I remember sitting there in that Christmas concert, kind of towards the end of it, and um, just having enough of not really knowing what to do. I've been coming to church for a year and just saying, you know what, I've had enough. Um, God, if you're if you're one of the if you're real, if you're what these people think that you are, if you are um, present, if you're if you exist, you know what? I'm gonna let you have a turn. And at that point, I just kind of was like, I'm done. I don't. I, there's no more fighting me left. I was at my rock bottom. And I just kind of prayed that prayer, and I just left. The really cool moment came whenever. Um, I was praying with my daughter, and they knew how to pray. They knew better than I did, because they did it in the preschool. And so she had this one stuffed animal that she could not sleep without, and um, we couldn't find it anywhere. We tore her bed apart, we tore her room apart, and I bent over to give her a hug, and when I did, my hand just happened to fall, and in that spot was her little panda bear. But it was the coolest thing for her to instantly pray during her night-night prayers for us to find that panda so she could sleep, and right there, there it was. And I was like, okay, that's just funny. That's really cool. All right, that was cool. And, but it still wasn't enough to make me believe. So then we had an incident um, where we had borrowed a piece of lawn equipment and it had broke. It was just, it wasn't in good shape. So we didn't have enough money to fix it. We didn't have enough money to repair it. I was, I was like, all right, God, if you're here, show up. And on the side of the road, literally on the side of the road, it had fallen off. That exact tool that we needed had fallen off of a vehicle and like one small part was broken on it. And I'm not, it's literally the same day. And at that moment I was like, okay, okay, Lord, I know that you're real, I get it. I'm fully in, I'm all in. And from that point on, I never once doubted that that God existed and that he was with me. So at that, at that moment, I dedicated my life to just trying to really grow as much as I could to, to become a woman of faith. And the work that we did in our marriage um, four years ago, uh, we have a living blessing that we can look at. Like we have our son, our third son Dawson, who will celebrate his fourth birthday. And if it wasn't for the work that we did and God bringing us here to Hillcrest, he wouldn't be here. You know, one of the other blessings besides just having Dawson is 
um, God's allowed us to raise our kids in a Christian home. Like, and we're learning a lot with them, but, um, and I'm learning right alongside them, but they're able to see their parents living uh, in a way that honors God and raising them to do the same. Um, their home and their school and, and their friends, you know, we're putting them in this, um, we're allowing them to be in this atmosphere that is just constantly giving glory back to God because our family wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, for His salvation of our family unit, but also of me. My name is Raina Phillips, and this is my story. Good? I'd say it's pretty good. I have been on their journey for years, and I had the privilege of baptizing her, and now she's leading teenage girls in our student ministry with her testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. What's your story today? 